Amen. You may be seated. And I invite you to go ahead and turn in the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1. I have been looking forward to this day because we're kind of pulling double duty this morning. On the one hand, we are introducing Advent and talking about the hope of, of Advent and everything that we have in the coming of Jesus Christ. And, and this morning, we're going to be talking about prophecy and the hope of Advent and everything, all of that. But we are also beginning a series, a study through the Gospel of Matthew. I've been here for about nine years now, give or take. And we've always kind of focused on Paul's epistles or uh, different epistles here and there. And um, we've, we've never, well, I guess we did go through Mark, about half of Mark one time. And, uh, but uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna kind of go back to the source and just talk about who Christ is from the gospel of Matthew. And, uh, and I, I actually wanted to start this series about two months ago, and I could not, uh, because how in the world could you not wait until Advent season being that close to preach the first two chapters? So, uh, so that's why we're starting this morning, and that's why it's been kind of a hodgepodge of series uh, uh, leading up to this point. And so Matthew chapter one, and we're really just gonna be looking at the first verse this morning. Now, I assure you, we're not going to go through it one verse at a time. Uh, this will be about the only time we do this. Uh, that would take forever. Just so you know, John MacArthur, it took him eight years to preach through the gospel of Matthew. Uh, one of my dear friends, Jeff Anderson, took him three years. I don't know that it's going to take that long for us, uh, but we are going to take our time because we do want to extract everything we can out of it, and we'll be taking lots of breaks along the way because it is a rather large book. But can you think of anything that you would like to study more than the life and ministry of Jesus Christ? Amen? Amen. And so looking at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, reading from the ESV this morning, we read here very simply, and I'm not going to make you stand because it is, it'd be kind of up and down real quick. So let's just read this together from the board. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that is how Matthew chooses to introduce us to both the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes it can take me a very long time to keep uh, my promises um, Roxanne will ask me to do something and sometimes it takes me a while to do that. And I tell her all the time, honey, I know you asked me to do this and I'm going to do it. You don't have to remind me every six months. I I'm going to get to it. <laughs> now, I don't know if you ladies have that struggle with, uh, with your husband or not, but, but Roxanne certainly does. And I think it's really... I think it's really easy for us to get impatient, isn't it? For waiting on someone to keep their word and, and it just seems like it's taking a long time for them to do it. Especially, you know, the old saying that a watch pot never boils, I think is how it goes. And, and especially when you're anticipating it and anticipating it and there's, and there's something about watching a clock that makes it go that much slower. I think we can also understand the frustration of feeling as though God is not coming through with the promises that he made. I think we can understand that, can we not? Maybe you won't word it that way. Maybe sometimes you'll word it like this. Maybe instead of joy, this season brings memories of terrible loss. 
And you're wondering how many more of these Christmas seasons do I have to go through by myself? Maybe you're wondering that. Or maybe you're dealing with a difficult circumstance. All of this COVID mess has left you unable to provide the Christmas this year that you want to provide for your children. You're, you're wondering, Lord, how much longer will this go on? I just read yesterday, now they're talking about the Omicron variant. We're just in the O's, folks. I mean, we got lots more variants to go. And so how much longer must I endure this? I have a family member who's very sick right now. And just about every time I see him, and maybe you've heard something like this before from a loved one who's been sick for a long time and they've said, I don't understand why the Lord won't just go ahead and take me home. How much longer do I have to live like this? You know, all of those questions have a similar ring in mind. When is God going to make good on his promises? When is God going to come around? When is he going to to come through? My hope is running thin. My patience is being tested. How much longer? Because I don't know how much longer I can keep this up. I don't know how much longer I can keep hoping that it'll get better. And that's why this morning we've chosen to focus on Matthew 1.1. Because I want you to understand that Matthew is beginning this, his gospel, which served in the early church as kind of a discipleship manual. And he's beginning this gospel by connecting us specifically to the promises of the Old Testament. He's showing us that Christ is the fulfillment of all of those promises simply in this simple statement, the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see, often what we do whenever we talk about Christ in the Old Testament is we take you know, specific prophecies, specific verses, and then we match them up to events in Jesus's life and we say, okay, this is where Jesus fulfills prophecy. That is a legitimate practice. We're gonna see that Matthew, the first two chapters are basically designed around that format. And so that is a good practice to do. But what I want you to understand is that all of the prophecies of Christ fall into a larger framework of the promises that he gave specifically to two people, Abraham and David. And all of the other prophecies of scripture fall into the framework of those promises. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Because who else was born in Bethlehem? David. You see, all of these things fall back into this framework of the promises given to Abraham and the promises given to David. And we're gonna look at those this morning. We're gonna see that Christ is the sure hope that we have and that we, in order to have hope, we must place our hope in the sure promise of Christ. And we're gonna see that by examining how Christ is the fulfillment of these two particular promises. It's the first mark of a disciple. There's simply no substitute for this. God's promises are sure. They are firm and we can place all of our hope in him. 
He is the, the fulfillment of all of that. And he introduces us to Jesus Christ and his ministry in light of the fact that he is the one by whom these promises point to. And so we want to put our hope in him, place our hope in Christ. And we're gonna look, first of all, and I'm gonna take it backwards from what Matthew does here because we're gonna take it in the order of the Old Testament. We're gonna begin by saying that we can place our hope in the sure promise of Christ because he is the fulfillment of Abraham's blessing. He is the fulfillment of Abraham's blessing. And I want you to see this in Genesis chapter 12. We're gonna do kind of a zip through the, uh, the book of Genesis this morning. And so uh, I hope you got your Bible turning fingers ready. Or if, uh, if you're using a phone or an iPad, I hope you're ready to punch buttons. But uh, we're gonna be looking in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three, because I want you to see this promise as it unfolds. Right here in the beginning, God is making a series of promises to Abraham, and they're really important for us to see. And I want you to notice all, depending on how you wanna count them, there's seven of them. He says in verse two, I will make of you a great nation. I want you to hold on to that phrase. I will bless you and make your name great. I want you to hold on to that phrase too so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, watch this, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, there's a couple things that as we go through the book of Genesis, there's some things that I want you to see how this promise is going to work itself out. Is that number one, that what God intends to bless the whole world through a promised son. Through a promised son. And here's what I want you to see. And uh, he says, I will bless those who bless you, dishonor those, uh, those who dishonor you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed. How does Christ fulfill this? Because as he goes on through uh, his life in Abraham, by the time we get to Genesis 15, Abraham is getting old, Sarah is getting old, and he's beginning to recognize that, look, this promise is not gonna come through me having many children, but it's going to come through the promise of one child. And we see here in, in Genesis 15, in verse two, he says, oh, Lord Yahweh, what will you give me? For I continue childless in the air of my house as Eliezer of Damascus. You have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Understand, Abraham is beginning to understand that this promise is not gonna come through many children, but it must only come through one child. And that's exactly what God tells him in verse four. The word of Yahweh came to him and said, this man shall not be your heir for your very son, singular, will be your heir. So Abraham is beginning to recognize that it is a singular son that by whom the promise is going to come. So he understands that part, but what he doesn't understand is still the supernatural nature of this son. You say, why do you say that? Because in verse 16, in chapter 16, he gets in a hurry and he begins, he decides that I'm going to bring about this promise, not through a supernatural act, but I'm going to bring it to be through my flesh. And he takes on Hagar as a wife and has a son through him. His name is Yishmael, and we're not going to say much about him. 
But in chapter 17, God once again reaffirms the promise. And he says once again that a child from your loins, a child from Sarah, will be the promised son. And so now Abraham is figuring out that not only is it going to be through one son, but it's going to be through a son that will come by a supernatural birth. There is nothing natural that is taking place about this birth. It is supernatural. Sarah is way too old to have children. Abraham is way too old to have children. And yet God is going to perform a supernatural act and Sarah is going to be the mother of a child. So Abraham begins to understand this. So this blessing is gonna come through a son, a promised son who will be of a supernatural birth. But then he also begins to understand that this son, this blessing is going to have to come through sacrifice. Through sacrifice. Where are you getting that? Look in Genesis chapter 18. This is a verse that is connected to the Abrahamic promise that is often overlooked. But in Genesis chapter 18, God is beginning, he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. And there are three men. One of them is a pre-incarnate Christ himself. We know that from the way that he talks. And he says in verse 18 and 19, he's talking to the others who are with him. He says that, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Notice he's invoking the promise there right? But then look what he says in verse 19. He tells us why he chose Abraham. In verse 19, he says, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him, watch this, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And notice this phrase, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. You see that? In other words, the, the way that the blessing is going to come, the way that this promise is going to be fulfilled is that Abraham must teach his son to practice perfect righteousness and perfect justice and to keep the way of the Lord. That's how the promise will come to the earth. It's through the perfect righteousness of Abraham's son. There must be perfection. There must be perfect righteousness in his son. There must be perfect justice through his son. He must keep the way of the Lord perfectly. There must be absolute perfection. Do you see that? And that is the way that the blessing comes to the earth. The problem is, is that as you look at chapter 19, you see the destruction of Sodom. You see the punishment for imperfection, essentially. Chapter 20, chapter 21, we see nothing but the sins of Abraham. We see nothing but the sins of Abraham. He throws his wife under the bus for a second time. We see the results of his first sin with Ishmael causing problems, and so he has to be thrown out. Abraham's not the guy to do it. Abraham is not the one. There had to be perfection in Abraham 
as we see in these chapters, is full of sin. In fact, by the time we get to the end of chapter one, he's not even living in the promised land anymore. He's living in the land of Abimelech. And so Abraham failed. And because he failed, because of Abraham's sin, now the promised son has to die. Now the promised son has to die. And so in chapter 22, God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, take him to a place I will show you and you are to offer him as a burnt sacrifice on the mountain that I will show you. And Abraham obeys and he goes, he takes him there. And I want you to notice specifically verse eight, Isaac, can you imagine this? Isaac's looking around saying, hey, uh, dad, I know we're going to burn something. I see wood, I see everything else. I don't see anything to, I don't see anything to sacrifice. What's going on? And look at what, look at what Abraham says. He says, my son, in verse eight, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And you know the story. He gets there. He gets on the very mountain which later the temple will be built. And he, he ties up his son, binds him under the wood, and he lifts up the knife to give the killing stroke. And God says, stop, stop. And Abraham looks into the thicket and he sees a ram caught in the thicket. And Isaac is spared and the ram dies. Abraham's faith in God interceded on his behalf, and there in the thicket is a ram. But you know, there's something interesting to notice. When Abraham prophetically in verse eight said that God will provide for himself a ram, he didn't say that, did he? He said God will provide for himself a lamb. But God didn't provide a lamb, what did he provide? He divide, that's right, he provided a ram. Why? Because Isaac is not the promised son who will be killed. There is a greater provision coming. God will provide himself for a lamb. It will not be Isaac. It will be the ultimate promised son of Abraham. It will be Jesus Christ. And when Christ walked onto the scenes and John the Baptist introduced him, what did he introduce him as? Behold, the Lamb of God. This is the one whom Abraham prophesied of. This is the Lamb whom God will provide for himself. This is the promised son. Jesus Christ is the promised son of Abraham. That's why Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it. And he was glad. Did Abraham physically see Jesus Christ? No, but what did he see? He came to understand that his promised son will be the one who will provide through his perfect righteousness and through his sacrifice. He will be the one who brings the blessing by which all the nations of the world will be blessed. Do you see that? And so... Through this, the promise of the blessing comes. Matthew shows he is indeed the son of Abraham. That's the whole point of the genealogy, that he is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. And then what do we go on to see? Matthew shows that this is the very son who comes through supernatural birth. Only not a son born to old age, but quite the opposite, actually. 
a son born to a virgin. Through supernatural birth, he comes to save the world through his perfect righteousness and by his sufficient sacrifice. Christ is the son of Abraham. He is our sure hope. He is, do you you see that through Christ it is the one? He is the one by whom blessing comes through the world. Maybe it's hard for you to see God's blessing right now. Maybe, Maybe you're going through a difficult time. Maybe you're having trouble with your finances because of COVID. Maybe you are having difficulty with sick family members or or there's problems or difficulty in your home. And of all the times of the year that this should be the most joyous time and yet you are not experiencing that joy. Understand who the blessing comes from. Our families are a blessing, yes, but the, the source of all blessing comes from Jesus Christ. And if you know him, then you have the blessing of God. You have the favor of God and you can withstand the disappointments that this world brings. So you can have hope. You can have sure hope this season, beloved, because our hope is placed in Christ alone and not any other. Don't misplace your hope in something else. Christ is the source of all blessing. And so we place our hope in Christ because he's the source of Abraham's blessing. And we place our hope in Christ because Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of David's kingdom. He is the fulfillment of David's kingdom kingdom. Look at, uh, we're just going to look at one verse here, so you can kind of park here. Second Samuel chapter 7. And this is known very well as the, as the Davidic covenant, David's covenant, God's promise to David. It's known very well. You see, David wants to build God a temple. And God says, no, you are a man of blood. You cannot do it. But there is one coming after you, one of your children will build the temple for me. David's not the first king in Israel, but he is the one who was placed as king over Israel specifically because he had a heart that was after the very heart of God. He is the one, he wasn't perfect by any stretch, but he is the model of God's king. And and God is going to give him this significant promise in 2 Samuel chapter seven. I want you to see how this promise brings us even closer to Christ and and it tends to be misunderstood. So, So basically there are two parts of it. And what I want you to see first of all is that Jesus is going to be the one who brings about God's promises, that Jesus is the one, that the one who holds the Davidic promise is the one who brings about all the promises of God. And we're gonna see that in nine through 11. I want you to notice this in, in, uh, in chapter seven, verses nine through 11. He says, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And notice this phrase here, and I will make for you a great name. Does that phrase sound familiar? We just saw that, didn't we? What is that pointing back to? It's pointing back to the Abraham promise that he just gave. So now the name that God appointed for Abraham, the name that by which all the blessing of the world will come through, it is now David's promise. It is now going to David. And he says, you will carry the Abrahamic covenant. You will carry the promise to Abraham now. 
and I will make for you a great name like the name of all the great ones on the earth. And he says in verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. I don't have time to get into that specifically, but just know that that exact language is the language that's used by Moses as they are coming into the promised land. And so this is, the, this is mosaic language. This is language that goes back to the promises that came with the promise of Canaan, with the promised land as they were about to go in. And so the one who has the Davidic promise, he carries the Abrahamic blessing. He carries the Mosaic covenant. But then in verse 11, he says, and from, that, and from the time that I appointed judges over Israel, uh, over my people, he says here in verse 11, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Who does that point to? Well, you go back to that word rest. That word rest in Hebrew is noach. Does that sound familiar? It's Noah. And when you go back to the, the promise of Noah, what did God say? He says that I've, I will name him Noah. Why? Because I will give him rest from the effects of the curse. And so the one who carries the Davidic promise carries all the other promises that God gave leading up to this point. And how does he do this? This begins in verse 12. Is David the guy? No. David himself is not the guy. Why? Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. So we are pointing to a son of David. And I want you to notice this phrase. And if you mark in your Bibles, you might want to underline this. He says, I will raise up your offspring after you. That phrase, I will raise up, beloved, that is the only time in the Hebrew Bible that it appears like this, in this format. And what it's pointing to, I think, in all honesty, I believe that this is a kind of seed promise of resurrection, that God is telling David, I will not only uh, bring about a king after you, but I will actually raise up one of your sons. And that is the son by whom I will establish his throne forever. It's the only time in the Old Testament that this language is used like this. And so God says that when Christ, how is he gonna earn all of the promises, which I, I should have said that up there. How is he gonna earn our salvation? How is he gonna do that? Number one, he's going to do it through resurrection. Because God says, I will raise up your seed. I will raise up your offspring after you and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, and he shall build. Oh, by the way, did David understand this as resurrection? I think so. Because if you look in Psalm 16 in verse 10, he says that, well, my little electronic thingy. Let's look at that. Psalm 16, verse 10. Oh, it's up there. He says, for you, this is David speaking, you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. Beloved, that is the very Psalm of David that Peter quotes in Acts chapter two to help the Jews understand that Christ has risen from the dead. 
And David could not have been speaking of himself because he is dead and buried and we know where David is buried. But Christ is risen from the dead. So did David understand this as resurrection? I think he did. I think he did understand it. He obviously knew something. And so he says, I will raise up your offspring after you. Number two, how will he bring about the promise? By building a temple. Now, of course, immediately, this is referring to Solomon. But Solomon's temple was torn down, as was the temple in Jesus' day. And yet God says here, he will build a house in my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The temple that God is promising here, yes, we see a hint of it in Solomon's temple, but the temple that God is promising is the temple that will remain forever. Who is that temple? Once again, we see in John chapter two, who is the fulfillment of the temple? Jesus says, you tear down this building tear down this temple, I will raise it up in three days. He wasn't talking about that brick and stone building. What was he talking about? He's talking about his body. And then in, in 1 Corinthians chapter three, as we see, what is the temple today that Jesus is building? He's not building a physical temple. What is he building? He's building the church. And the church is the temple. Jesus is going to build a temple, but it is not a brick and stone building. It is the church. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. The rock of Peter's confession. That is the temple he will build. He will rule through his temple. And number three, in verse 14, he will rule through his lordship. He says, I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me through that relationship that he has with the father. Of course, I don't even have to explain to you that Jesus is uniquely God's son. God so loved the world that he gave who? His only begotten son. So we don't need to prove that, I don't think. But it's really interesting here in verse 14. It goes on to say, and when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. And God says he will use the strokes of man to discipline the promised son for sin. Now, on the one hand, God is telling us how he's gonna deal with all of David's children. That is true, just like, he's, just like with Solomon. Yes, there is a physical temple coming that Solomon's gonna build. Yes, there are David's physical children, yes, that are gonna be treated in this way. On the one hand, that is true. This is how God is gonna deal with all of the kings that come from David. But there is something interesting here because I want you to notice this exact phrase. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, and notice this phrase, and with the stripes of the son of man. Do you know where we see that language again in the, in the Old Testament? Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off for the land of the living, who considered this? Who considered that by his generation, uh, who of his generation would have considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken, but not for his own sins? but for the transgression of my 
people. You see, people all throughout the Old Testament, they read this and they thought that the Davidic king was going to be punished, that the Messiah was going to be punished for his own sins. Yes, the Messiah was going to be punished for sin, but it wasn't going to be his sin. It was going to be my sin. It was going to be your sin. And do you see how all this comes together? How in the Abrahamic promised son, we have the perfect righteousness that is required and yet he's provided as a sacrifice, as a lamb. And now in David's promise, we have the one who will be punished by the rods of men for the sin, but not his own, but of his people. And yet God, in spite of that, is still gonna raise him up and establish his kingdom forever. Who else could that be fulfilled through other than Jesus Christ? Who else could that be? Who else could be the fulfillment of that? Yes, the son of God, the Davidic king, he will be punished for sin, but it will not be his own. It will be ours. And through that, he will provide redemption for by his wounds, we are healed. And based upon that, as we see, and you go on, even in Isaiah, Isaiah 54, Isaiah 55, you see, he goes on and he talks about this great and glorious kingdom that is going to be built of all the nations of the world, not just a piece of real estate in the Middle East, but all the nations of the world will be a part of this kingdom based upon what? Based upon the wounds of Isaiah 53. And that is how the promise comes. See, beloved, you can see that Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises of Scripture. And because of that, every prophecy is about him. Every picture is of him. Every theme is of him. All of the Scripture points to Jesus Christ and him alone. He is the hero of the story. And he's the hero of my story. And he's the hero of your story. Where is your story right now? Where are you in your story in your life right now? What, what is going on? Do you realize that Jesus is the hero of that story too? Do you realize that everything that's happening God will use to make you more like Christ, that it's not happening out of random chance, but it is for a purpose, a glorious purpose, that on the end of it, you will look back and say, praise the Lord, that he is so good to me. He kept his promise to me. Beloved, God is going to keep his promise to you. All of his promises are yes in Christ. We know that. This is our sure hope, beloved. When life is hard, listen, it is so tempting to lose hope. I've been there. I've been there many times. There's been more than one time in my life that I have cried out to God asking, God, isn't it supposed to be different from this? Isn't life, especially life of a believer, isn't it supposed to be different? 
I have come to that point so many times in my life. More times than I care to admit. And you ask in that time, where is the promise? How long will this go on? How much more do I have to endure? It's so hard to see past the suffering that's right in front of us. It's so hard to see the eternal picture when what's right in front of us is so difficult. It's just like the man who cried out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, when I look at you and I see you and I know what you can do, I see your power. Lord, I believe, but then I turn around and I look at my son who is, who is in the midst of a seizure, who is demon-possessed, who, who is literally trying to be, is, is being destroyed by this demonic influence. Lord, when I look at you, of course I believe, but Lord, when I look at this, it's hard. I believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe you're like that this morning. Maybe you're here and you're asking, is there any real hope? My hope is wearing thin. My patience is running out. Maybe you're here this morning and you've placed your hope in something else. You're asking, where is the hope of this coming? Beloved, I wanted to show you this this morning because I want you to see that God keeps his promises. I want you to see that Christ is the fulfillment of all of the promises and it is through Christ he will keep all these promises again and again and again. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ and you're looking at all of this and you're saying, you know, people have been saying Christ is gonna keep his promise for centuries. He's never, he hasn't come yet. He's not gonna do it. By the way, you're not alone. That's exactly what Second Peter said would happen. And here's how Peter answers that. He says, do not look this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, beloved, as some count slowness, but what is he? He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Maybe you're here this morning saying, where is the promise of his coming? Maybe it's waiting on you. Maybe you're the very one that God is waiting for. He is patient with you. We've been waiting 2,000 years for his return and he hasn't come yet. Why? Because he is patient for you. By the way, I sure am glad he didn't come before I turned 15 because that's when I came to know Jesus as my savior. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to know Christ. Beloved, he is not slow to fulfill his promise, but he is patient. And he is waiting for you to come. It's not because he's slow. It's because he's patient. And that is the whole point of the gospel of Matthew is to live in the hope of Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you don't have that hope, I want to offer it to you this morning. Beloved, Christ has 
He has provided exactly what you need for salvation. He was, he did live that perfect righteousness, earning the blessings, earning all the promises that God gave. Christ earned it all by his perfect righteousness. And then he went on the cross and he provided himself as a punishment for all the sin we deserve. He became the lamb of slaughter so that you and I can become the sons and daughters of God. And because God was satisfied with that, because it was enough, he was raised on the third day in absolute victory over sin, hell, death, and the grave. And in the, and in the hope of his resurrection, you and I have hope today. He is building his temple. He is building his church. He is building his kingdom. And you can be a part of it if you will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your time here this morning. We thank you that you've shown us through your word that these promises are sure. And yes, they took place over the span of thousands of years, but you never forgot. You never withheld. You never abandoned. Lord, you are patient. You are kind. You are merciful. And you are not wanting anyone in this room to perish this morning, but that all may come to a knowledge of repentance. And if there's one here this morning who has never repented of their sin and come to you in faith, Lord, I pray this would be the morning that you would draw them to yourself and they would give themselves to you as Lord and Savior. They don't have to understand it all, but they do need to know that you and you alone are where they must place their hope and their faith. Well, whatever your need is this morning, I invite you to come. I'm just gonna invite you to stand very quickly and I'll just invite you to bow your heads and just reflect on what you've heard and maybe you're here this morning and you are just having trouble believing the promises. Is God really gonna return? As I looked at my loved ones who have suffered so greatly from COVID, perhaps some have even died. And I've looked at that and I've said, are the promises really true? Beloved, I assure you they are. Because God has kept all of his promises through Christ. And because we have the first advent, we have the promise of the second. So I invite you to reflect, and if you have a need, I invite you to come forward. peace of Christ in your heart this morning? Do you have a settled faith that whatever is happening, that the Lord is in control because you have his promise? I hope you do.